Jewish audio on Chabad.org. So today we are hopefully going to finish the fourth, the third chapter of Megillus Esther. And the last thing we learned about was Haman's proposition. Big shekel payoff, and as a result, he wants, he wants to destroy us. But you're going to see the words that he uses is actually very specific. Today's class picks itself up on the third chapter, the tenth verse. Perik Gimel, Pasuk Yud. Chapter 3, Pasuk Yud, verse 10. So what did, what did Haman say to the king? He said, I'm going to pay you a lot of money, and I want to do as I please. I want to get rid of these people. So what was, what's the appropriate response? If you have a question, what's the appropriate response? Answer the question. What, how does Ahasuerus respond? The, the, the Megillah doesn't tell us. The Megillah says, tells us what Ahasuerus does. The king removes his signet ring from his hand, takes his ring off. He gives it to Haman, the son of Hamdata, who is the Agagite. He's got deep history going back all the way to Hamalek. The one who torments the Jewish people. So the first question is, why don't you answer, don't you answer the question? What, what, he didn't ask for your ring. Why are you giving him your ring? A second question is, what's this business with Haman being identified suddenly by his father's name, by his ancestral name, and as by his favorite passion of hating Jews? We have a whole bunch of adjectives or identifying marks for Haman suddenly. He's Ben Hamdata, he's Ha'agogi, and he's Tzayrat HaYehudim. Why all of a sudden in Pasukud do we mention all these things? And then, only afterwards, then, uh, then only after giving the ring, then the king responds to Haman and he says, The money's yours, he says. Don't worry about it. The silver is given to you. You gave me the silver, I'm giving it back to you. Go ahead and do what you have to do. You can do as you please with the nation. Which, according to some of Farsha, means use the funds appropriately. You had an idea? You wanted to pay me for it? It's okay, I don't need the money. Use that money to accomplish that which you set out to do, that which you wanted to do. Use the money for those purposes. So why does Haman not get a response? Why does he have all this activity going on first? And only afterwards does the king respond by saying, it's okay, I don't need it. And only, he doesn't say, he says, Haman asked a question. What was his question? His question was, if, if the king is okay with it. So there's this nation, this troublesome nation, and uh, it's not worth for the king to have them. So the king should write something, should issue a decree to get rid of them. The king doesn't say, doesn't respond to him, doesn't say, okay, I'll write something. He says, keep the money and do as you please. Hamad didn't ask him to do as he please. He asked for the king to write something. So all these things, these are questions that beg to be answered. The first, the first uh, thing we have to know is what is the business with the ring? Why is he taking his ring off? What does that mean even? So Rashi tells us you should know that taking the ring off is a big deal. It's a big deal. Hu matan kol gadol. This is the giving of anything really big. So in the old days, every king had a seal. It's called in archaeological terms, it's called a bula. And this bula would be embossed or pressed into soft clay and that would make something long. It's like, for example, today, in today's day and age, uh, the, in Ottawa, they sign a law. There's an official signing. They sign the law 
into effect. And whether the prime minister does that, or whoever does, whoever the governor general, whoever signs the law into effect, different uh, governing, governing systems or different uh, people who are empowered to sign the law into effect. Let's say in the United States, the president signs it into effect. And once that signature is affixed, then the law goes live. Somebody who doesn't comport himself in accordance with it could be prosecuted for violating the law. So once upon a time, this happened when a seal was affixed. So it's as if having this, this pen, that once the pen is used, the, it's signed into law, it doesn't matter who uses the pen, but once the pen is used, once that signet ring is used, it's law. So Rashi says, this is not Ahasuerus taking off his engagement ring and say, oh, you know what, have, have my ring. I just I thought I should share this with you. No, this is very big. Because anything of importance that has to be done by the king will only be with the ring. That's what makes law. And therefore, he says, Whoever has that ring in his hand has the power to do anything under the dominion of that governor, of that king, of that, ma of that magistrate. So this is really a very big deal. It's a very big deal that he take, takes, takes the ring off and he gives it to him. All right, I, I still don't really understand why, does it, why is it that Achashverosh doesn't respond by actually dealing with the question. What, what, doesn't he, what, does he, what does he say? Oh, who is the nation? Who exactly do you want to kill? Uh, how do you want to get rid of them? Let's discuss this. And I'll write the law into, into, into action. So I want, I want to focus on it. Before I go back to this question itself, I want to focus on a, on a, on a, a medrash. Maybe it's a side medrash, but nonetheless, a, a, it's, it's meaningful. And you should know that Ahasuerus is, uh, this whole business, this is really a follow-up to the, the shekel payoff, where Haman gives money and Ahasuerus says, I don't need the money. There's a medrash that says that when Haman came with the silver, the king said to him, the silver is yours. Hakasib nasun lach. So it says, at that moment, HaKadosh Baruch Hu said, Ki li avadim, the Jewish people are mine. I have acquired them, as it says, in many places in the Torah. And the prophet Chagai says, li that gold and silver is mine. So he says, Chayecha, he says, the silver is mine and the people are mine. And so what did you say? You say, you want to, you want to buy my people with my silver? And you said, keep the silver? <laughs> What's going on over here? So, so uh, the, the Medrash records that HaKadosh Baruch Hu was extremely upset with Ahasuerus at doing this. As if, as if uh, eh, the money, the, I don't, I don't, I don't, you, I don't even need the money. I don't, there doesn't even, we don't even need uh, any kind of payback for this. There's another Medrash that says there was two people. One person had a, a hole in his field, a ditch in his property that he wanted to fill, and he was trying to buy landfill. And somebody else had extra earth, and he was trying to get somebody to sell the landfill to so that he can get rid of it, so he can clean his field out. What happened? These two people met, and one said to the other, he says, take the earth. He says, take it for free. The other one says, I'm happy to take it for free. Everybody was happy. In other words, Ahasuerus had the same grievances. He hated the Jews just as much. He took, he took Haman's grievances. I don't, you don't have to pay me for it. I'm happy to take it. We can, we, can, we can do this. We can have a deal. You need money, you can fund your project with the money that you offered. And the Medrash seems to emphasize very much this business of Ahasuerus using the money inappropriately. So the Dubna Magad says, he says there's a mushal that once somebody invited people to a feast and everybody got these fancy portions and one person said, you know what, I don't need my portion. I'll give my portion to somebody else. So the host came and he said, no, no, no. I didn't give you a portion to give somebody else. I gave it for you. If you don't want it, then give it back to me. Then it's mine. I'll give it to whoever I want. I did not empower you to give it out to others. 
And so, though the Magad explains that the Medrash is really telling us, Hashem said to Achashverosh, I gave you money. I gave you money for a good purpose. You're supposed to use this money well. You don't want to use the money well? You're telling Haman, keep the money? No problem. In that case, I will give the money to the one who's deserving. The money goes to Esther and the house of Achashverosh, of Haman, and all of his wealth goes to give, given over to Mordechai afterwards. Okay, at any rate, we see that the business with the money does not go by lightly. The fact that Haman was willing to, to spend an enormous fortune in order to animate his plans of hatred against the Jewish people does not go by unnoticed. And the fact that Achashverosh is willing to forego this fortune and he's happy to see it happen and he doesn't even want a payment for it is meaningful also in and of itself. But let's go back to the ring. Let's go back to the ring and let's go back to the fact that Haman never gets a direct response from Achashverosh other than do as you please. So the, there are many, many interesting Mepharshim with regard to the verbiage that Haman uses. He says, Im tov, if the king wants, we learned this last time, he should write to get rid of them. But now if you take a look in your, in your, in your uh, Megillah, you'll see that in a few Pesukim when it says when Haman writes the law, how, what does he write in verse, in verse 13? He says, Lahashmid, Laharog, Ulaabed. He uses not one, not two, but three different expressions. He says that this would be to destroy, to kill, and to exterminate. But he never said that Achashverosh. He never asked Achashverosh to kill, to destroy, and exterminate. He just said Laabed. Laabed can mean to get rid of. So the, the Chidot, for example, says that Haman was placing feelers. He wasn't sure how Achashverosh would react to this. So he used the kind of language which would be ambiguous. He says, get rid of them. He says, sometimes an Aveda is something that, you know, you lose it, you find it. Sometimes Aveda means to get rid of an entity or, or rights or prominence. And sometimes get rid of is literal, means to destroy, to kill. Haman uses his words very carefully. He just, he pushes it out there. Achashverosh is no fool. He understands that Haman wants him to make the decision who's going to kill and destroy, exterminate the Jewish people. So what does he do for Haman? He takes off his ring. He says, as you please. But Achashverosh himself never gives an order to kill. He never says kill the people. He says do as you please. Haman understands what's going on over here. How do we know this? So if you take a look, the language that's used is very interesting. It says, the, the language is, he gives the ring to who? To Haman, ben Hamdata. But then he says, Ha'agogi. Who's Ha'agogi? Agogi is the son of Agag, who's the grandson of Amalek, who was famed for hatred of the Jewish people. So in other words, Haman never says which people it is. But Achashverosh knows right away which people it is. Or as uh, it's brought down to the Ma'am lawyers, he says, Yeshne Am Echad. He knew immediately who he was talking about. He said, Oh, Am Echad, the nation that says, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elikein, Hashem Echad. He knew right away. But he doesn't want to be the one who's guilty. He doesn't want to be the one who says it. And the Ma'am lawyer says that he was very concerned. He asked all the wise people, Should I do this? No, if you start up with the Jews, it doesn't always go well. Historically, things haven't gone well. They said, you know what? It's over, it's historically. Nebuchadnezzar uh, destroyed his holy house, and his Mashiach was supposed to come. They were supposed to go back to Eretz Yisrael, rebuild. It didn't happen. It's over. He says, the Jewish people have fallen out of favor. They have nothing to worry about anymore. But Achashverosh is still very careful. And therefore, he, do, he says, he understands. He knows exactly what Haman means. And he knows what Haman says, La'abdam. He knows what Haman means also. But he doesn't want to write the law. So he's never going to be faulted. So he says, why not? In case something doesn't go right. I didn't say anything. I'm clean. 
He doesn't want to take responsibility. He doesn't have to take responsibility. He's, he's prepared. Let Haman, let Haman take the responsibility. He wants to play it safe. So he says, oh, you want to, you want to love them? No problem. You could, you could do as, as you feel is necessary to deal with our Jewish problem. Go ahead. Now here's something unbelievable. You know that the Nazis were masters of deception. The most famous act of deception, of course, is the, the large sign that was on top of Auschwitz-Birkenau, Arbit Macht Frei. It's a work camp, but it was actually an extermination camp. Right? And they also had this idea of Vernichtung durch Arbit, which means destruction through work. But it didn't say that clearly. So here's something really interesting. In, in 1943, there's a letter d- dated July 11th from Bormann, Yemach Shumai, and he writes like this. The letter is, Retreatment of the Jewish Question. Who is Bormann? A famous Nazi. Yeah. And he writes, and I'm, I'm quoting, this is a translation that I got. Quote, On instructions from the Fuhrer, I make known the following. Colon. Where the Jewish question is brought up in public, there may be no discussion of future overall solution. However, it may be mentioned that the Jews are taken in groups for appropriate labor purposes. They didn't want to leave a written document. They don't want to leave a trail. And, very interestingly, more research showed me that as a rule, they never ever used to write these things publicly. With the except of the Eisenstadt group, which was responsible for the actual gas chambers, they never wrote clearly extermination or killing. They had something called Zunderbehandling, special handling. And all of the things that they did were under code names. Nothing was, nothing was said clearly. Theresienstadt, as you know, was a, was, was a ghetto where people died like flies. Why did they create Theresienstadt? Because they had a problem. In the deception, they're saying they're t- settling people for reworking. So how do you have old people? How do you have, how do you have lame people? They can't do any work. So they had to create a quote-unquote old person's ghetto or a lame person's ghetto. And then they brought the Red Cross there. And then they made a famous documentary. And they had people coming and visiting. And these same people who were forced to make documentaries about everything was fine. They themselves later were killed. But they were very, very careful to create this masquerade so they wouldn't get caught. The Nazis were extremely careful, extremely careful in not, making, in not documenting what they did, whatever they did in writing. Here's, here's uh, uh, an incredible thing. This is a, of a trial transcript from 1946, July 26th, from the uh, prosecutor whose name was Jackson. This is his closing speech for prosecution. And he said like this. He said that the Nazis used all kinds of euphemisms. Final solution of the Jewish problem was a phrase which meant extermination. But it was just said, final solution. By the way, the Madagascar plan, which is officially resettlement, they also use the same term, final solution. Special treatment of prisoners meant killing. Protective custody meant concentration camp. Duty labor meant slave labor. In order to take a firm attitude or positive measures meant to act with unrestrained savagery. Therefore, the prosecutor said to Nuremberg, before we accept their words or what they seem to be at face value, we must always look for hidden meanings. This is exactly what you're reading in the Megillah. The same Haman. It's unbelievable. Do you know that, 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 that if, the, if you look at the, we'll get to this later on, but in the names of Haman that are spelled out, there are small letters. It spells the date of the Nuremberg trial. 
And the, one of the most famous Nazis, Goring, before he was hung, he screamed that Purim spiel, which means a Purim play in 1946 before he was hung. So there's a direct connection between the language that Haman and Achashverosh used in being very, very careful. And Achashverosh himself, is not, he's not guilty of anything. In fact, when Esther, we're going to read about this much later on, Esther says, there is an, uh, 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 my nation is going to be destroyed. So Achashverosh feigns innocence. He goes, really? Who? He says, if it would be sold into slavery, I would be quiet. But they're going to be destroyed. And Achashverosh says, really? Who's going to be destroyed? And she says, who did it? And she says, Haman. Wait, who did it? He didn't know what was going on? So a little bit, he could be, he didn't even know. The Malbim maybe says, maybe he didn't fully know what was going on. He hated the Jews. He wanted to get rid of the Jews. And as long as he got rid of the Jews, and this, and he says, I don't want to hear the yelling and screaming and see the blood. Just keep me out of it. As long as he could keep his hands clean. And he himself didn't even believe he wasn't such a savage. He hated Jews. Leave me alone with Jews. That's a tricky one, sort of, because Haman is associated to be the Rasha of uh, Purim and Atatajma. It's true. It, 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 it is true. It's true that it's, in some way it worked. But, but those who know, know that Achashverosh was not tzaddik. In the in in in, in this in Borman's letter it said all co- I'm reading again I'm quoting now all correspondence referring to the matter was subject to rigid language 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 rules with the exception of the report by the Eisenstadtgruppen there are almost no documents in which you actually find the words like extermination or liquidation or killing final solution evacuation and special treatment those are the words that are found again and again in Nazi documents. They didn't want to write what they were doing. Yeah, they wrote records of what they did. And, and the Eisenstadt group, in which actually recorded the deaths, recorded the deaths. But the orders that were given, what did Eichmann Yimach Shmuel, one of the master architects, what did he say? He was just following orders. I didn't, I didn't do anything. I didn't come up with any of this. Right, so we have, we have, we have the, the, the Chidah in two places here. And later on, when, I, when, es, when Esther says, I didn't know, the Chidah says that Haman was not necessarily... Achashverosh wasn't fully clued in, or he certainly never left any trail. He didn't say, took off his ring, do whatever you want. So he answered the question. He understood, but he understood exactly what was being asked. In fact, in the, the Vilna Gaon puts it this way. He says, Ha'am ka The nation, do as you please. He said, Haman Haman didn't mention two things in his words. Number one, he didn't mention which nation. He just said there is a nation. The phantom nation. It's not, it's not identified. And number two, he doesn't say what to do with them. He says, la'abdam. Get rid of them. How do you get rid of them? You chase them away. You take away the property. You demote them. How do you get rid of them? It doesn't say. So he says, ha'am. So Achashverosh says, ha'am, the nation. What does Achashverosh say? He ha'kesef nasnach. He says, keep the money. The ha'am and the nation. You can do as you please. Which nation? Hachashverosh knows. How do we know? Because he gives it to Haman, Ben Hamdasa, Ha'agogi, Tzorid HaYehudim. So Hachashverosh knows exactly what Haman's talking about, but he never says it. He says, the nation. Here you are. Here's the keys. Do as, do as you feel you must. Furthermore, in the Bayer of Ram, it says that you'll see later, we're going to talk about this soon, when Haman sends the letters, he does not send the same letters to everybody there are at least three different communications that are sent out, as you soon see. So Haman perpetuates this idea of masking and concealing everything on a number of different levels. 
Achashverosh plays as if he doesn't know what's going on. Haman sends some the direct message and to others he gives a vague message to be discussed. We'll see what, we'll see what happens later. So, so we, we, the, the, the Vilna Gaon says that the, on, on what, he, what he says later on, he says that Haman was afraid that if or everybody, ordinary people would find out, then this would have some kind of negative effect or the Jews could start lobbying. So therefore, he had to keep everything a secret. Do you hear what's going on over here? Now, Haman also, you're going to see, uses this relatively oblique language without speaking very clearly. And in the Alshech, I found very interesting, the Alshech says like this. When Haman came to the king, he was afraid of the king's reaction. He didn't want to speak openly. So he says, he didn't want to say lahashmid. He didn't want to say the word to exterminate. He didn't say to kill. He said laabed. He says, bachar lashen arumim lashen hiyuli. He used clever language, theoretical language, abstract language. Get rid of something that if it could be interpreted in a number of different ways. And he wanted to see, Haman was testing Achashverosh to see what Achashverosh felt. How would Achashverosh react? And he made sure there would be no financial issue. Pay off, money is there. What do you think about getting rid of them? Haman sees that the king not only gets it, but he plays with him. He takes off the ring, says the Alshach, and he says, you know what? I trust you. Do as you see, see fit. What, you don't even want to know what's going on over there. And the Alshach says something very interesting. This is why we see that Haman is so calculated. Let's take a look in, in the next verse. They called the scribe, the king's scribe, in that first month, which this is Nisan. In the 13th day, and he writes, Everything that Haman said, that's what was written down. The king didn't give the command. And he sends it out to the Achashdar I'll come back to that in a minute. And he sends to all these different nations. We're going to come back, but I want to, I want to take you forward now to verse 13, where he says, that he says, get ready for a day. The day is chosen. The 13th day of the 12th month. So in other words, he gives himself exactly 11 months. Exactly 11 months from, from today, that's when this is going to be done. So the Alshach says, Haman is a very smart guy. And he knew that when he chose, we talked about this a few classes ago, when we talked about him choosing the month that he looked for, he said when he got to the month of Adar, he was very happy. He said, oh, Moshe Rabbeinu died in this month. So why didn't he want to do it on the day of Moshe's passing, on the Zion Vadar? So the Alshech says, because Haman knew that sometimes a tzaddik's passing is also has merit. And he said that the merit sometimes could extend for seven days. And he learned that from Mr. Shalach, who died before the Mabel, because he was a tzaddik, and then Hashem delayed the Mabel for seven days for a shiva. So he said, let's wait till after the shiva of Moshe. The Zion Vadar, the Yemei Lula, whatever, sad day for the Jews, but still is a schos. Wait till after the shiva, the week passes, which is the 13th day of Adar. He said, that's the perfect day. That's the day we're going to be choosing. Achashverosh is not involved in this. Achashverosh, there's no clue which day is chosen. He, all he knows is Haman, he likes Haman's thinking. Haman has some very good ideas. He says, Haman, here's the ring. Do as you must. Do whatever you have to do. And Haman seizes the moment, as we're going to, as we're going to see soon. He doesn't waste any time. What's, what's his rush? It's 11 months away. It's almost a year away. He doesn't want the king to change his mind. 
He wants, he's got the ring now. Now is the time. Pull the trigger while you can. So now we have a little bit of background. Uh, it's, it's not, it's not um, maybe unnecessary or, or superfluous to mention that the BDS, which is naked anti-Semitism, plays the same game. Everything is doublespeak. People speak about rights of the Palestinians. Right? The fact is that the Arabs living in Israel have more rights than anywhere else in the Arab world. So if you worry about rights for, for, for innocent people, why don't you protest against Syria? Why don't you protest against Saudi Arabia? Why don't you protest against Iran? There's a, there's, there's a member of the Supreme Court, Israel, Israel Supreme Court, that's an Arab. There's a senior commander of the IDF, there's a Bedouin. Uh, there's a, there's a, 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 beauty, a beauty queen, a Palestinian, uh, whatever, whatever you want to call it, the Arab woman. So what, what kind of no rights? But it's all language. It's all language. The whole BDS is predicated on making it sanitized, making it sound good. This is the very old and nefarious approach. This was the approach of Haman. This is the approach of the Nazis. This is the approach of the BDS anti-Semites in today's day and age. Make no mistake. They all want the same thing. And the tragedy is that a lot of Jews get sucked into this and fooled because of the language that's being used. Say that they want to eliminate Israel. Now, so this is, this is very interesting. There's a book that somebody wrote about language, about the, what the, was it, the Nazis. They used extraordinary language. Hitler used extraordinary language in 1933, 1934. Extraordinary language. It was so extraordinary that people discounted it. They didn't believe it. And there's a, there's, there are theses written that Hitler did everything in a calculated way. They, he used such extraordinary language, such, such a, a, off the wall, such, such things that were so crazy to people that nobody took him seriously. So then when actually he started issuing orders, nobody took the orders. Nobody was worried about language anymore. Because once you cry wolf so many times and nothing happens, so then everybody becomes accustomed to the language and they stop reacting. So, so you have the same thing in Iran. Iran is using this language again and again and again. And at some point, people say, yeah, we heard that already. They're not even reacting to it. But you're right. Everything, it's, all, it's, it's like a double-edged sword. On one hand, to use the most outrageous and the most nefarious language, but to use it so often that it doesn't even get thought of anymore. On the other hand, when you're actually ready, then to use special language, sanitized language, Sonderbehandlung, special handling. Special handling is a gas chamber, special handling. So even though it's written in charter, people really don't take it seriously? No, people don't take it seriously. So that's why the United Nations behave in the United States? United Nations is complicit. United Nations is like Achashverosh. They say, here's the ring. Go ahead. Do what you have to do. And you think the White House is different. Think again. Israel takes it seriously. Israel takes it seriously. I should hope Israel takes it seriously. But the world is condemning Israel. Why? Because the world doesn't want to take it seriously. But what's really behind it? What's really behind it? It's the same old anti-Semitism. My friends, the Megillah is not yesterday's book. It's today's book. Tragically, it's staring us in the face. These are the, the, the language that's being used. If you study the Megillah carefully, you see Mamish, the story of history, repeating itself in front of our very eyes. And now, now we'll see further. Now let's go back to the verses. So what does Haman do? So the first thing he does now, once he gets the ring, is he calls all of the royal, the royal uh, scribes. Calls the royal scribes together, and he, he says to them, and it was on that very day, on this very day, didn't waste, didn't waste an hour. The, the Megillah fingers the day. He sees the moment. 
He had them write everything he said. It doesn't say anywhere because Achashverosh never commanded. He was very wise. He said Haman could do. And Haman did. And what did he write? He sent it to Achashdarpane HaMelech Velapachos. So here we have the Megillah identifying two different kinds of, of people who were receiving the letter of Haman. Who are, the, who are these people? Who, who are Achashdarpanim and who are Pachos? So if you take a little a bit, bit of a study of language, it seems that Achashdarpan is a Persian word. It comes from ancient Persian. And it means those who shield the kingdom. So this would be perhaps in the equivalent of modern terminology, maybe the knights. Or maybe those who are, maybe the parliamentarians, governors, magistrates, people who are responsible for the defense or the shielding of the kingdom in each and every single place. And, and so the Ashdarpanim is more like the nobility, the people who are either lawmakers or, or occupying formal roles. And the Pachais are the actual rulers who are actually the actual administrators, the, 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 the regents or administrators in every single place. Now, interestingly, a pacha, a pacha, a pacha is singular, pachais is plural. So I, didn't, I, don't, I don't know this with certainty, but I know in, 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 in Akkadian, a royal or a king is called a pacha. But every, every language has different language for king, right? In Russia, it's a czar, and uh, in, in Egyptian, it was a pharaoh, and in, in Khazaria, it was a kagan. They did people different names for the king. Okay, so what was the name for the king in, a, in Akkadian, ancient Akkadian? It's a pacha, a pacha or pachos. Now, don't go so ancient. What were the rulers in Turkey called? Pasha. So I, I didn't see this anywhere, but I'm thinking that the pacha is a pasha. It just became from a ch into a sh. And we find this in language. So the pasha was the ruler. So in other words, he sent this to the Achashdarpanim and the pashas. The people who were in charge of making sure that things happened. The highest level of nobility. The highest level of those who are responsible for each and every single one of Ahasuerus' provinces. Now, he sends it out to the Ahasuerus, to the governors, and to the officials of all the people. And he makes sure that everything is written. And the Megillah tells us very, very specifically that when Haman sent this message, he sent it, El Medina o Medina, First of all, al Medina He dealt with the governing bodies of each province, of each separate area. Amva'am, on the nobility of each nation, whoever the people looked up to and respected. each province, Each one got it in their own language. In their own script. So it was not only their language, it was in their own script. Because it's conceivable that Achashverosh used some kind of language which was universal in the country. Like, for example, the Soviet Union used to use Russia, Russian, but the truth is that small countries had their own language. Their own language. They kept their own languages, and people learned two languages. But this seems very clever here. He wanted to make sure there was no misunderstandings. He, he, and also, he made them feel good. Each one got it in their language. Each one was being recognized. You are a leader. We're counting on you. You're responsible for your own area. Like Hitler's willing executioners, the Ukrainian police, the Hungarian police, they lined up. Sure, here we are. One S, two SS men, one SS man sometimes was accompanied by a local group, a local brigade, and they rounded up the people. And they were the happiest ones to kill the Jews. This is exactly the same story. 
So each one gets, it's nichtov, it's written, but royal scribery, and it's nechtom, it's sealed, but tabasa melech. Haman gives the orders, it gets written, sealed. And then, after this happens, so the Mepharshim say, why? Why today? Achashver shouldn't change his mind. He said, ah, Haman, where's my ring? Oh, sure, you can have your ring back. He did what he has to do already. Once, once the ring accomplished what the ring had to accomplish, Haman doesn't need it anymore. Now, he does this, he does this, and immediately, immediately before Achashverosh can call back the letters, verse 13, He sends out these, these uh, letters by courier, but the couriers are rats. Rats means to run. So this is overnight delivery. The Pony Express. <laughs> to all of the promise of the king. And what do these letters say? Now we read what the letters say. All of a sudden, we're not talking about la'abed. La'abed, as the Chidah says, could be explained in three different ways. We can understand a variety of ways. As the Alshach says, it's vague. It's vague. Oh, when he wrote the letters, there was nothing vague about it. He was very, very, very clear. Here he said, this is to, to lahash, lahashmid, is to destroy, laharig is to kill, laabed, to exterminate, as kol yehudim, all of the Jews. Minar v'adzokein, from old, from young to old, taf v'noshim, children, women, b'yoyim echad, on one day. B'shleish ha'asr l'chedesh ne'emasr, on the 13th, hu chedesh adar, that's the month of adar, v'shalom levois. And, the, the, the plund, they can plunder their possessions. So the obvious question is, and you can plunder their, their possessions. That's, that's, if you can kill them, of course you can take their possessions. Why would why they have to add that on? That's, that's like, which is greater? The right to kill somebody or take his possessions? So the Rebbe once talked about this. The Rebbe said something very interesting. He said that when Haman was sending these letters in everybody's own individual language to, every, to all the individual leaders, what was his ultimate goal? What was he trying to accomplish? He wants to make sure that they're all going to carry out the plan, right? So, in order to make sure everybody carries out the plan, Haman has to give some kind of incentive. Here's the incentive. You kill them, you get to keep their money. Oh, you have a prescription, he said. Oh, now you're talking. So, therefore, this is the Shalom Levois comes at the end, even though taking money away is much less of a harsh treatment than killing, than murdering genocide of a whole nation. But that was, he added on to make sure that it would actually get, uh, get done. Hummer was afraid. Maybe they'll say, maybe we shouldn't do this. Maybe, go kill people. Why are we killing children for? Maybe we should just assimilate them. Maybe we should threaten them. Maybe we should... So, therefore, Hummer makes sure he says, no, there's, there's, first of all, he says, the, the king sometimes would take the property of people who were killed by the name of the king. That's actually the way it always is. The gover- government confiscates. And the Gemara says, in fact, in Sanhedrin, that harugim malchus nichseihem lamelech. If somebody is killed by edict of the, of, the, of the government, where does the money go? It goes to the government. So, so here, uh, the people are not going to be so incentivized. Money going to Achashverosh anyway. So therefore, as soon as he has the, the signet ring, he makes it, writes it into law. What does he write into law? Lahashma laharagul abed. And he writes into law the Shalom Levais that the money will not go back to Achashverosh, but rather that people shouldn't say, what do we get out of this? It's written into law that La'abed is kala Yehudim and don't worry about it. V'shalom Levais and you will get to keep all of the residuals that you confiscate. 
So in doing this, Haman acted with great speed, so Ahasuerus shouldn't change his mind, and start asking details, and maybe I want the money. He saw Ahasuerus didn't want to be responsible. You make the law, no problem, says Haman. Later, Ahasuerus will say, what did you do? He said, well, you told me. You gave me the signal ring. You, told, you didn't tell me to ask you. In fact, he said, I don't want to hear about it even. He never even answered my question. He never says, he says, here's my ring, go ahead and do it. Haman didn't waste a moment. So with great haste, he sends these messages out, and now we have um, uh, 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 something which is signed into law because the rules were, as we read later in the Megillah, once something is sealed and signed and sent, nobody can take it back. That's the rule. The king has to follow his... Even the king himself can't undo those laws, and he has to follow his own rules. It's done. It's done. king can't violate the law. Law of the land, that's it. The law is a law. No, nobody can do anything about it. Now... Now, the Megillah says something very funny. Verse 14, Pashegen Aksav, which Pashegen means a copy, like a secondary uh, uh, letter, to establish rule or law in each and every single province. What was that? This should be revealed, published, published for all peoples. They should be prepared for this day. So what is, what is this? What is this Pashegen over here? What is this secondary letter that's, that, 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 that's happening? We just said Haman sent out letters. Why would he send a, a second letter? Well, look, the first letter was sent to who? To Achash Darpanim and to Pachos. Who are those people? The people who made the rules. The government agencies. The nobility, the rulers. After he sent that to the rulers, then he sent a letter to the public. What did the letter to the public say? The letter to the public did not say to kill anybody. The letter to the public said, be prepared for this day. Everybody mark this day, save this date. Something very big is going to happen. Why didn't he tell him what's going to happen? Because then his plan, once it gets out, then the Jews could do something to unroll back the plan. So therefore the whole kingdom found out that a certain something is going to happen, something very big is happening on this day. Everybody should be ready to be mustered, to be, to be, to be brought together, and, and this way, everybody, the, the, the date was out. Nobody made any weddings that day. They didn't schedule any bas mitzvahs that day. You know, this is, dates put aside. We know we have something special has to happen on this day. And then Haman figured in a later time, once the right and appropriate um, uh, opportunity would present itself, so then he would already go and tell them, okay, here's exactly where you should be. Here's what to bring. Here's what to expect. Here's how we're going to do it. What do we see? Exactly like we just read before, where Borman says, from now on, all correspondents should not say clearly killing. This is, this is the Nazi tactics, exactly what they did. The correspondence now was purged. Clean language, sanitized language. We're going to talk about resettlement. We're talking about evacuation. We're talking about special handling. We're talking about aggressive measures. Don't say what? It looks pure. Because there are always decent people that say what? People have time to think about something. They recoil in horror, and this and this says says, says the Alshech. This is exactly he said. He didn't write them. He says, "Devarim stumim." There was a sealed document almost. There was a document that said nothing. All it said to them was, "It said, be ready for this day." Le'amar lama. The, the Alshech says he didn't tell him why. He didn't tell him what's going to happen. He just said, "Be ready for this day." And this is, he says, clear, he says. It was two kinds of letters sent everywhere. There was, 
to the nobility. The leadership knew everything. Shainus II was lahavel kor make a very public announcement in front of the people. And the Alshach says that one of the things Haman was concerned with is that the secret would get out. So he said that the Jewish people would gather together yachad shivte yisrael, and they would be able to defend themselves. Maybe the Jews would defend themselves. Maybe they would do something. And if they have 11 months to prepare, a lot, a lot could be done in 11 months. So he made sure, top secret, nobody's allowed to know. From this point in onward, don't say anything. The second letter, here's what you will spread to the public. And that's why he sent Sforim Bahatsna. He sent secret letters. And this was only to Achashdarpanim, to Pachos and Sarihamim. And that was clear. The letters he sent were clear. Make no mistake. Very, very clear language. Don't, 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 don't let the public know about this yet. And only after, I'll tell you when, when the time will come, but this is what's going to be happening. So, again, we see, like, you know, you talk about the idea of, 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 of the use of language, of the deceptive means. This is the art of Amalek. This is the art of the Agagites. In fact, Amalek came and attacked the Jewish people so the first time they changed the language. They spoke one language, they dressed a different way. They had always been a masters of deception, always masters of language. From the second time they attacked the Jewish people when they changed the language, we see her Haman uses, keep it a secret, special language. What has to be said is said, but nothing more. Now, the, the, the Rashi says that the Sfarim were sent out on the 13th day of Nisan, which is another, you know, this is, we're talking numbers of the month, so Nisan would be the first month, and, 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 and other would be the, the, the 13th month. Lehinasin das, Rashi says, what does this mean? He says, that means, Sivui, the uh, commandment, which is written, so then it becomes, Chayk Gzeres HaMelech. The day was established already. Now nobody could, whatever Achashver should want, nothing could be changed. So if he would only send it to nobility, a date hasn't been chosen yet. He wants everybody to know about it. He wants it to become as much law as possible before Achashverosh can have a change, a change of heart. And that was Golol Lechol Amim. Dover Zeh. Rashi doesn't say clear what the Alshech or what, or what the Yichidah says. But he says, Dover Zeh. This thing, what's this thing? This thing of the day. That was something which was, which was out into the public. Now, what happens over here? What, where, where does this go? So first of all, he says... The couriers ran with great haste. Who was pushing them? Why did they have to run with such haste? It's 11 months away from now. Obviously, because, for, as we said, Haman is very, very worried that the king might change his mind. The law was then promulgated in the city of Shushan. And immediately after, what's the response of the once this law is signed in? What's, what do they do? The king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Shushan was confused or bewildered. So first of all, it's very interesting and um, it's chilling that we have the business of sitting down to lunch. In Wanasi, they had a lunch. That's where the final solution was. was, was uh, the plans are drawn up and ratified after a hearty lunch. But the, the Medrash tells us that there's a different lunch here. 
when Yesus' brothers sold him, they sat down and had lunch after. And there's a connection. They're not mutually exclusive. And who was the one brother who did not participate in lunch? Exactly, Binyamin. And who was Mordechai and Esther's ancestor? Binyamin, Yishimini. So there's a very deep history. That's, this is not an isolation. Everything that's going on over here is something which is over the ages. This is Binyamin's chance now to right the terrible wrong that was done by the other brothers. And they're called, the Gezerah was against HaYehudim. Who was the leader? Yehuda was the leader of his brothers. The Gezerah was against the Yehudim. This is the first time we start to hear them called Jews. And interestingly, the Medrash tells us further that they, when, when the Medrash says, says it openly, what I tell it says in, in, the, in the Targum Sheni, it's brought down that, about Binyamin. But the Medrash says openly, HaKadosh Baruch Hu said to the Shvatim when they sold Yosef, he says, You sold your brothers at a lunch? When you had lunch? He says, You'll see, I'll have you sold. And then lunch will happen. And that's exactly what happened. Now, the question is, the city of Shushan was bewildered. Okay, first of all, why, why are we talking about the city of Shushan? These letters went everywhere. So if, if anybody was bewildered, everybody should be bewildered. What's going to happen? What's, what's, what is this date set aside for? And, and the leadership is tight-lipped, they're not talking. And all the people must be wondering. So the whole province, the whole country must have been wondering. It says, no, you're Shushan of so the, the Medrash Rabbah says, on this very Pasuk, a Jew would go out to the market, he wanted to buy something, he's going to buy some meat, or he's going to buy some, some, some vegetables. A Parsi would come, a Persian would come, and he would choke him. And he would say to him, tomorrow, tomorrow, he says, it's coming. Soon, I kill you and take all of your money. And therefore, there was like a sense of bewilderment. What, is, what does that Medrash seem to indicate to us? It seems that even though there was there was a, a, a secret gag order in the rest of the country. Shushan, which was the capital, where most of the people lived in Shushan, were in some way engaged in governmental work. So they were more in the inn. So the people of Shushan found that already. They, they, and, and therefore the Jews living in Shushan were bewildered. They don't know what's going on. All of a sudden they're being attacked. All of a sudden there's this ugly anti-Semitism, this emboldenment of their enemies, and they don't know where it's coming from. So the whole city was bewildered. Something, something had happened so swiftly, so quickly, people didn't yet have their, couldn't get their heads around to understand exactly why and what was happening. The Mamloya says that the, the bewilderment was that there were Jews in Shushan were crying, and the enemies, the neo-Nazis, the BDSers, the pro-Palestinians of those days, they were laughing and singing. And, and it was like a, a cacophony of strange sounds coming. It was either a happy city or a mournful city. It was a contradict, contradictory sounds. So therefore it says the Ir Shushan will sound like a bewildered place. There was, there was, there was a lack of clarity. There were a lot of Jews living in the capital. And it seemed that many, many Jews actually worked for Ahasuerus' government. Right? There were finance and other, and other areas. A tremendous amount of Jews actually were, 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 were living in the capital city for that exact purpose. In general? Well, we get, we get numbers of, of, uh, of Jews living in, in, in Shushan, but not... Exactly how many numbers, we don't know. We don't have exact numbers. All right. Now, here's something which, which um, is meaningful. I think, I think uh, I, the I didn't share with you yet. When it says, when Haman says, when Ahasuerus says, HaKesef Nasun Lach, the money, the Kesef is yours. So the Medrash Abba points out that Kesef is the same gematria of the word Ha'etz. 
Ha'itz means the wood. Ha'itz means the wood. So Ha'kesef and Ha'itz is the same gematria. Why? Because the subtext is here. Haman thought he's getting money. But in the end, he got the gallows. And there was Hashem already encoded in the words, they, they say things, they plan things, they, in the end, nothing will come of it. So Hashem already, in, in the words, it already is encoded, the solution is encoded in, in, the, in the worst moments. Because the Yeshua, the redemption of Hashem, is there in, in, its, in its potential state right at the beginning. We just have to actualize it. But right in the beginning already, when this whole thing started to unfold, we had this concept of a future redemption of how everything in the end was going to turn around. Haman gave him Kesef. Haman put, uh, gave him a Kesef. Haman ends up in the gallows and all of his money instead goes to, to Mordechai and to Esther who received the house of Haman. Yes, yeah, Haman hangs on, yeah, that's, that's exactly the point. That's, that's exactly the point. Now here's something really interesting. If you look at the Galut of Bavel, we suffer tremendously. Look at the descriptions of, of, of in, 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 the, in Echa, Megillus Echa, the description of the book of Yirmiyahu, terrible suffering, t- terrible, terrible, tragic events, horrible things happen to the Jewish people. This is the cusp, the end of the Galut, and it's the best we had it. It's the best we, we never had it so good. In fact, one could argue that maybe in history, the Jewish people never had it as good as they had it in the time of Ahasuerus. The queen is Jewish. The a senior member of parliament is Mordechai, member of the Sanhedrin, Rebbe of the Jewish people. Not just that he's recognized as an important man, he's a senior member of parliament, senior member of the Senate. So if you would come to say somebody and say, so when do you think there'll be a chance of genocide against the Jewish people? They say in a time when there's Jewish people being persecuted or a time when the Jewish people are living in the lap of luxury, they're doing well, they're accepted, they're, they're, they're in the universities, they're, 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 they work for the government. What do you think somebody would say? Well, what is the intuitive thing to say? Not, not, not then, not then. Exactly. Well, let's think about this. In all the countries of Europe, where did Jews have it best? Germany. In 1923, the defense minister of Germany was a Jew. The def- a member of cabinet. And yet, that's the same country that spawned, Rahman al-Tzan, the Lahashmed, Laharigul Abbe, the final solution. So, so the Rebbe said, the Rebbe said, what is, what is the message to us? The message to us is, that sometimes you make the mistake of thinking that we can rely on natural means whether it's diplomacy or military might, we can take care of ourselves. We'll be just fine. But unfortunately, sometimes we get a very, very rude awakening. How, did, how and why did this happen? Well, it happened, it says, the Medrash says, I might ask the question, such, a, such an extreme situation where it says, never in history was there a decree leveled against killing every single Jew everywhere in one day. It's never such a thing. What did they do? So the Medrash says, well, Suda. The Gemara says that they, 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 they enjoyed the Suda of Achashverosh. That's the Gemara Megillah says, Dafyud So the Rebbe says, okay, I understand. It was not nice to participate in that, in that feast. It was on Shabbos. He uses Caleb of the Beis. It was not nice. I understand. But for this, deserve death? 
it's not one of the three Averis that you're supposed to like lose your life for even. And they had like reasons. For this they deserve a genocide? Like what kind of, what kind of response does, is, is the Gemara saying? The Gemara asks the question openly. What, why did they warrant this kind of punishment? The Gemara says, So the Rebbe explains it like this. The Rebbe says that we know that the Jewish people are metaphorized as kisba achas, as a lone sheep, ben shivim among 70 wolves. So how does, how does the lone sheep survive among 70 wolves? The answer is God because there's a shepherd. And the shepherd protects. But med varam when the Jewish people remember that there's a shepherd. But nenem ha'isi was, now they placed their future and their fortune, now they placed their security and survival in the hands of natural means. They're prepared to abandon Hashem. They said, we don't need a shepherd anymore. Now we have a Jewish queen. Now we have a Jewish parliamentarian. Now we can take care of ourselves. And that's the meaning of Shenenu Meisusudah. Because when they started to benefit from, they said, oh, the king is going to be the one who provides us. Not Hashem. So then they, 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 they lost their divine protection. They lost the divine protection. How is one sheep going to survive surrounded by 70 hungry wolves? The answer is that it cannot. And, and what brought about the miracle? When we did tshuva and returned to Hashem. The Alter Rebbe says a stunning thing in Torah. He says that the Gezerah was against Yehudim. It doesn't say against Yisraelim, it says Yehudim. Why? He says because as Yehudi comes to the terminology as we discussed previously in the previous classes about Mordechai, Mordechai Yehudi means not to acknowledge idolatry. To, to throw the gauntlet down and say, I will not down my head in submission. I worship one God, I'm a Jew, and that's something to talk about. That means a Yehudi. That's the meaning of a Jew. And he said, if there wouldn't be Yehudim, if they would be willing and ready to shed their external existence and no longer be identified anymore as Jews, then, then, then they could have escaped. They could have been left alone. But not a single Jew did. This was not different. Stalin, Yemach persecuted Jews in an unbelievable way. We know now that he had plans for concentration camps. He wanted to exterminate all the Jews. But in the beginning, who carried out all of his dirty work? Jews. The Yosekzia. A special part of the Gepa'u, of the, of the KGB, was actually Jews, initially called the Cheka, and then they were called the Yosekzia afterwards, staffed by Jews. And, they, and they, were, they, were, they, they didn't identify as Jews. They identified as communists. Tavarish, comrade. They were comrades. They were not... The, 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 the second, the second uh, highest communist, second highest leader was, was a Jew. Trotsky, Leon Trotsky. Right, who, St- who Stalin later killed. But they didn't care. Jew, not Jew, no problem. Lenin didn't have a problem with having one of his lieutenants being Jewish. No issue. And, and uh, you know, unfortunately, it never stays that way. And it didn't stay that way. And the Jews were persecuted. But the truth is, in theory, communism did away with anti-Semitism. No anti-Semitism. No, we don't care. Just don't be Jewish. Uh, you want to be Jewish? Oh, then different story. Then we persecute you. Then, then there's, then there's, no, there's no, no holds barred. So the Alter Rebbe says that if the Jewish people will be ready, Imratzu lahamar dasam says the Alter Rebbe in Tereir lehaya isa haman isa lahem klum. Haman wouldn't do anything to them. What bothered Haman? That Mordechai wouldn't bow down. And he saw it's not just him; it's a nation that won't bow down. That the most secular Jew, the most lost Jew, in the end, you tell him, bow your head, bow your head, say I'm not Jewish. Oh, that's already another story. Can he can't abandon Hashem alikei Yisrael? In fact, there's a famous story with the Tzemach Tzedek where the question was posed to him by a Moscow, by an enlightened, quote-unquote, 
a secular Jew who said, why does the Megillah say, by Yehudim la'abdam, two Yudin in the Jews who are living in Shushan? So the Tzemach Tzedek said, because there are some Yidin who live, a Yevri Yid has Eser Kreiches Hanefesh, Yud is ten. They have ten soul powers. He says some Jews identified more with the other ten soul powers, the ten soul powers of the Nefesh Abamas, of the animal soul. They were the secular Jews. They were the Jews who were very, very disassociated, disenfranchised, disconnected from the Jewish source. But guess what? Even those Jews he was after, because they still identify Jewishly. And ultimately, it was because the Jewish people stood in the state of Mesiris Nefesh, in the state of devotion. And not a single one said, no problem, I'll just give up my Jewishness. Let's just say we're not Jewish anymore. But for 11 months, with, 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 with targets on their back, they, they, they maintained their Jewish identity. And they, 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 they said that despite whatever would come their way, they would remain loyal to Hashem, they would still be Yaakadosh Baruch Hu's people. This is what undid the damage. Because that's the polar opposite. Here they say we place our security in the hand of local governance, in our own self-reliance, and instead the response was that they did tshuva, and they said, we place our reliance totally in the hands of our Kaddish Baruch. Now this idea of, of denial of Avedizara, it doesn't require great sophistication. It doesn't require tremendous education or affiliation and background. It's actually a simple thing. It's a simple essence, a simple common denominator. And that's why Haman wanted to destroy everybody. There was something about the Jew didn't matter, small Jew, big Jew, old Jew, young Jew, didn't make a difference. And the mysterious Nefesh was demonstrated by all of the Yidin, also, from large to small, everybody had that same kind of mysterious Nefesh, the same kind of devotion to HaKadosh Baruch So this is very meaningful, because it reminds us, if, if we believe in the Torah, and I think we should, and if we believe that the Megillah is not simply a story of yesteryear, but rather it is the story of today, and in case you don't even have to believe that, if you just look at the words of the Megillah, and look how this nefarious plot hatches and unfolds, and you see the very same tactics being used by our enemies in this very day. We see now that Iran, which is the same exact geographic location as, as Persia of old, of Haman of old, they're saying the same exact words, Never in history since Purim has anybody said these words. Never in history anybody threatened, to, made real credible threats of saying Yisrael, A nuclear bomb is Yem Echad. And, and, and what, do they, what do they get for it? They just got $150 billion released to them. They're just given a fortune. The enemies of the Jewish people, who masquerade as the friends of the Jewish people, who never who are very careful with the language, the master of language. Master of language. Very careful with his words. Claims to love Jews. Signs off. Gives the ring. Do as you please. Do what you must. And he gives the money back. He says, here's the money that you need for your programs. Here's your money. <laughs> it's like that... This is happening now. This is not. This is not. This is not the ancient history. This is not seventy years ago. It's terrifying, actually, but it's also very inspiring. Because what happened? What happened is we stopped putting our trust in nobility, in kings. What happened is we realized that the only one who saves the little sheep is God Laraya, is the great shepherd, and that tells us that that's all we need to do. And today in our day and age, obviously, whatever could be done in a material sense, in a literal sense, has to be done. And we'll soon see. We'll get to Peter Gedalad. We'll soon see. Mordechai is going to take action. But the action he takes is only after he's going to first mobilize the people spiritually. 
So if we mobilize Am Yisrael, if we come together, if we become Yehudim, if we deny idolatry and atheism and, 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 and stop going away from the principles of the Torah, but re-embrace the principles of the Torah, and we do tshuva HaKadosh Baruch if we return to Hashem, then we have nothing to worry about. Just as Hashem destroyed our enemies in the past, the same way, Merz Hashem, our enemies will be destroyed in our time. And hopefully this time it's not just going to be a Yeshua purtis, just a small kind of salvation where we'll say, Akate Avde Achashverish, we're still the servants of Achashverish, we're still under the sway of a foreign empire. But in Merz Hashem, this time, when Hashem will save us, hopefully we'll all return to Eretz Yisrael with Mashiach, Ben Heder, will be Amen, Amen.